Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, ciao, bonjour, hola, bonichiwa, nihao, marhaben, namaste, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories Podcast 2023. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Betsy Olam. And speaking to us from Portland, Oregon, is today's guest, Richard Biggs. Director, North America for Trade Horizons. Richard is a global business development executive with a wealth of hands-on experience spanning diverse industries, economies, and cultures. I'm looking forward to chatting with him about all his experience and how he assists his customers. First, a word from our sponsor. We are all about storytelling here, and there is another story I want to tell you about. It's the story about how one company can help you solve your commercial real estate needs, whether in town, across the nation, or over the oceans. That company is Levy Commercial Realty, LLC. They provide strategic commercial real estate advisory and brokerage services. I'm talking about retail. I'm talking about restaurant, entertainment, and distribution. Levy's clients include local legends, regional brands, and Fortune 50 companies known around the world. You're going to want to join Levy's select group of clients. Their email is contact at levycommercial.com. That's Levy, L-E-B-Y, commercial.com, and I'll post it on our website. Now back to the show. So now it is my pleasure to introduce Richard. Hello, Richard. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Betsy. A pleasure to be here. It's great having you. And the way we kind of, the way we usually start the podcast is learning a little bit about your background, uh, such as how you came to Oregon and how you came to Trade Horizons. So let's start there. Okay, well, as you might be able to tell, I I am not an Oregonian or indeed an American. I am am British, although I do have uh, a US passport and in fact, an Italian passport as well. My, My mother was Italian, my father is British and I grew up in London and I, uh, because of my asthma, I was advised to take up swimming by my doctor at a very early age. It developed into uh, a a habit and I eventually became quite good and represented uh, England in uh, international competition. Wow, what what, what was your specialty as far as swimming? What was your- Uh, 200 meters butterfly. So I was a butterfly swimmer. Wow, that always yes. looks really, uh, really challenging. But that's cool. That's great. That's it, great. It's 50% technique, uh-huh. 50, uh, 40% uh, 
uh, strength and 10% stupidity to become a <laughs> butterfly swimmer. Yeah, I get that. Oh, cool. Thanks you for that. And uh, my, my dream uh, as a swimmer, as is most swimmers, was to come to the US. And uh, you have a much more developed program. So I was lucky enough to uh, win a place and I went to OSU initially mm-hmm. uh, and that's Ohio State not yeah, Oregon I State. Yeah, Oklahoma or Ohio Yeah, State. yeah. Ohio State, okay. uh, yeah and um, I thought America was was fantastic because uh, on the plane over from from London to Columbus I actually met a girl and um, I who became a girlfriend and I think all my teammates just thought I was the coolest thing because uh, by the time I stepped off the plane I had a girlfriend who lived in Columbus. (laughs) That was a good uh, that was a productive flight if there ever was. That's that's (laughs) that's what I thought so um, I uh, swam I ended up uh, transferring up to Cleveland and uh, I did uh, my final uh, couple of years there. I swam in NCAA Division One, and had a wonderful time. Ended up marrying a girl from Cleveland, um, who who I later upgraded for for a different one. But that's another story. That's another story. Uh, I then went back to London and found a job. Uh, quite by chance in international banking. Mm -hmm. And that got me on my path to having uh, an affinity towards all things international. Yes. Um, Can I ask one question? Yes, of course. So during this time that you were beginning your business career, were you still swimming and, and competing? Indeed, yes. Yes, I was. Um, I, I suppose I stopped swimming at about the age of 22, 23, which is which is typical. It was at, at that point. Um, although in in later years, I uh, did move to, to Florida and I picked it up again in, in the Masters uh, scene. Oh, wow. Um, yes. So... Uh, that's from, from from banking, uh, I sort of uh, moved around quite a bit. I, I got an overseas posting and, and lived in Japan for a while, uh, went to New York and lived in Manhattan for a while, and international just became uh, a little bit of a habit. And I found that it, it was very, very interesting um i actually quit my job uh, working at the bank and decided that uh, i wanted to come back to the us mm-hmm. i ended up settling in in fort lauderdale and starting a business so uh, i started a business in what i loved which was sports cars oh. and i started importing exotic racing car parts from mostly from different parts of Europe. So supplying 
components for Aston Martin, Ferrari, uh, Lamborghini, that type of thing, and did a lot of business with South America, actually, um, from living in uh, Fort Lauderdale, and just continued that trail towards doing cross-country uh, business. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that is really fascinating. Um, so do you, did you find that your early life in competitive sports, um, I, I, what I'm trying to say is, is, was that something that gave you some skills in selling or, or, or trading or, or, or did you find there was something in that background that that helped you go into the business world oh it i in a heartbeat i would always hire an ex-athlete it doesn't matter if they play um you know tennis they're a runner they're a swimmer a diver whatever it is you have to be dedicated i mean i i was in the water four to five hours a day plus land work and you have to be dedicated you have to be strong focused all the things that help you become a a really good business person so um you know I I remember I remember one of my first swimming coaches consoled me when I, I didn't win a race that I thought I would win and he said, well, it, it just comes down to you needing to try harder next time. And I just thought, that's ridiculous. But it's actually simple advice that, you know, if you are not winning, you either give up and you're guaranteed to come last or you try harder and you've got an outside chance of winning. So, you know, for, for swimming, it, it's a really, really tough sport just like you know athletics and I thoroughly enjoy watching especially long distance running where somebody just gets the the thought in their head that they've got to dig deeper than the other competitors and try harder and they come from behind to to win races many of the time right right. I, I I asked that question because early in my career I was in sales with in the steamship business. I've said that a number of times on the podcast. And I remember uh, that the company I worked for hired a lot of ath- you know former athletes and they they felt like they were well suited for sales. So I, I, I kind of thought yeah. we'd come up with the same answer to that. Question. No, I, I, a salesperson um, often, uh, the, the correlation between sales and getting knockbacks and athletics and getting knockbacks. I mean, you know, you do not win every race. In fact, you're, you're remembered often for just one race, and that might be the Olympics. But you've had dozens and dozens of second and third and not qualifying for finals getting to that event. Right. And with sales, you know, you don't often get the sale every time, but you just need to learn why you didn't 
and try harder next time. Right. So athletes do make great salespeople. That's, that's what I've always thought. So, all right. So I digressed in our discussion, but I thought, I think that's really interesting about your background. And I wanted to talk about that. So um, how many businesses did you develop and start before you got to Trade Horizons? Um, two, two main ones. One in Florida, where I made an awful lot of money didn't think about what I was doing. And I did something that I thought was easy. And that was talking to predominantly males about their exotic sports cars. And I remember my wife sometimes calling me at 10 o'clock at night because I was still at the office and she was she would say, are you coming home today? And I'd Ah, oh, yes, I realize it's got dark. You know, I, I, I was so in love with that business. Yeah. And it, it's sort of something that I'd advise any entrepreneur, make sure you do something that you absolutely love and yeah. you are not guaranteed, but you have a much better chance of success. So right. my first business was in something I loved, didn't plan anything i didn't have a business plan i just got going with it didn't have very much uh capital behind me but it was a big success wow. i then ended up selling that business and a few years later getting together with some really smart people from cambridge university we planned our next business together we had beautiful binded business plans. I really put a lot of effort into it. Mm -hmm. uh, three of us moved to Atlanta. We started it up and it was at about the same time that another company was doing a similar thing. Mm -hmm. They ended up being a little bit more successful than us. They were called Amazon. And oh. Chuck, I'm so sorry. <laughs> hey, but, um, but maybe you had the idea first. Maybe oh, I don't. I don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know. But all the money I won, I, I, I gained in the first business. I, I lost in the second business. But I learned a lot more in that failure than I learned in the success. So, um, you know, I'm not. I'm not bitter about that at all. Good. 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 So. Um, well, obviously, you already had international trade experience. So did Trade Horizons find you or did you find Trade Horizons? Well, actually, um, when I moved to Oregon, and that was a decision that was made um, after uh, my wife and I had uh, our first Actually, we had two children at that time, but they were very young, both under the age of 18 months. Mm -hmm. And we decided that it would be a really nice thing to move back to the US, uh, give them dual citizenship, um, give them access to you know, the opportunities here. And we, we chose Oregon because we thought it was going to be very different from 
living by the beach, living in a big city, living in a, a third world country. And we have, we've done that as well. Uh, so this was the big outdoors. So we, we decided to move here and I did start my, my third business. It, it, it wasn't a success, it wasn't a failure. It just changed and sort of fizzled out a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it was in, in the area of international consulting. Mm-hmm. But I discovered a few years into it, it's very hard to take a, a US company into a foreign market if you're not on the ground in that foreign market. Yeah. And we had limited people in a limited number of places. Trade Horizons uh, crossed paths with me. I liked their intelligent philosophy about doing international business. And they had put together uh, a really good group of people in some interesting places around the world. And I say interesting people because they're all like me. And uh, I mean, they're the sort of people that you can, to use a war analogy, you can drop them behind enemy lines. They can, they can work out the landscape. They can remain safe and they'll find their way back to the home, home territory. <laughs> so these are all uh, people that have got deep business expertise in a particular country. Uh, if I take... Uh, our uh, consultant in Cairo um, doing business in Egypt is easy if you're from Egypt, uh, not only from a language point of view, but mostly from a cultural point of view. You know how business works. You know how to find your way around. And you can be an interpreter between the American company, which we tend to deal with predominantly, and finding a place for that American company, how to position them correctly in Egypt. And that was always the missing link for me, having access to resources in country around the world. So Trade Horizons is is headquartered in London, but then we have about 20 offices around the globe in really interesting places. Excellent. Excellent. So now let's explain to uh, us, me and my listeners, uh, who are your type of, what type of clients do you work with and, and, and maybe describe in more detail the type of work that you do? Yes. Well, the, the, the type of work that we do is all about international market entry mm-hmm. for private companies. We then do work for uh, economic development agencies. So that would be um, maybe a city or a state or even a national government, which would be export promotion. 
So where an economic agency is looking to help uh, a company in their territory succeed in a faraway place. And the third chunk of work that we do is foreign direct investment. So uh, again, an economic development agency has identified a business cluster that they they really want to uh, build. And we would help find companies around the world interested in investing in that area. I see. see. Uh, So um, in terms of our clients, their corporations, companies around the world, their governments, their economic development agencies, the companies we work with tend to be a certain size. Uh, and in terms of revenue, that tends to be maybe five to ten million dollars at the bottom mm-hmm. end. Okay. Maybe a hundred to two hundred million at the top end. And we we've settled on that space because companies doing a billion dollars probably have their own in-house team. Correct. And they may or may not be doing it as efficiently as us, but they're doing it. Yeah. Companies too much smaller, we would all always advise them to focus on their domestic market first. Mm-hmm. And that's predominantly the advice we give. You know, become number one or two in your own country before you start exporting. Now, We have had instances where we found companies are just operating in the wrong place. Um, In fact, we we worked with an Oregon company once who was in the healthcare sector, and they were really, really struggling to get to grips with the the healthcare system here and the insurance uh, contributions and paybacks and we actually ended up moving them to, to another country where they flourished. So, uh, Interesting. yeah. 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 Um, and I think, um, so I know you're a member of the Oregon District Export Council, and um, I think you mentioned to me that you also deliver services like on behalf of the U.S. Department of Commerce. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, we we have um, a a good working relationship with um, U.S. Commercial Services, which is the export promotion uh, arm of the Department of Commerce, and uh, there are about a hundred U.S. Commercial Services offices in the U.S. They have. They are a great resource at, at the federal level. Uh, around the world, you will find uh, commercial offices or attaches in all the American embassies. Correct. And they have a service where you can pay a very modest amount of money and do a partner search or what's called a gold key service, where you are as a company looking mostly to travel to 
a market and meet with a selection of companies that might want to collaborate with you. Right. And I would like to say that the cost of that service to like a small, medium-sized U.S. company is very reasonable. It, it is ridiculously low yes. for the amount of work that goes into it. Exactly. Um, and we are an, an approved outsource supplier of those services in the UK market, which is one of the top uh, export destinations for US companies. Absolutely. Um, who you know want to go into Europe. It's it's often the first place they go. It's often uh, a country that's used as a stepping stone into the rest of Europe. So yep. the UK, you know, is the biggest single investor into the US market. The US is the largest single investor into the UK market. Um, and, you know, the trade relationship, the, the rule of law, uh, the culture is, you know, is pretty aligned. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but okay, so the British Prime Minister visited our president recently, and they were talking about how, you know, what kind of trade relationship we're going to have since Brexit. Of course, Brexit's been over for a while, but where do you where do we stand between the US and the UK on on the export side, exports from the US to the UK, what type of trade agreements are, are, are developing? Uh, you know, kind of what's the situation is that you can talk about? Okay. Well, the, the UK very much wants to have a, tr a free trade agreement with the US yes. and doesn't hide that fact. Getting a trade agreement with the US is a very, very long-term uh, affair. It takes a number of years. It takes a great deal of effort. And the US often looks towards uh, other countries that may be a little bit more um, I don't, I'm not sure if important is the right word, but that, that is, is part of um, uh, being closer aligned to the US view of the world. So they have trade agreements with a lot of the uh, South American countries right. because they think that, you know, do something about the safety in in those countries uh trying to stimulate trade with places like honduras and guatemala trying to um strengthen supply chains in certain industries there's a whole host of reasons so uh are you President saying that, that are you saying that markets that need more development are more uh, attractive or, or, you know, maybe on a faster track for free trade agreements? 
sometimes sometimes that is the result and uh you know mexico canada are extremely important to uh, the US, because lots of products are shipped there for production and the proximity makes yeah. you know, certain industries uh, work very well. Places like um, you know, Central America, uh, South America, there are, I think, six or seven free trade uh, yeah. countries. Yeah. They hold a key towards a lot of low cost labor. And uh, the U.S. is obviously trying to strengthen some of those countries for stability reasons. And uh, you're finding that there's uh, a lot of interest in making more of what is made by American companies in the Far East being moved to Central and South America because it's on the same land mass and yeah. it's environmentally much uh, nicer uh, it's just as inexpensive and the US is encouraging these countries through free trade agreements in my opinion okay the UK doesn't make a lot of stuff anymore it's mostly yeah. a service-based, economy okay. and uh, it, it would like to make more stuff but I, I just don't think it's particularly high on President Biden's to-do list. So okay. the UK has in my opinion made the right decision. It said okay well if we can't do it at a federal level let's do it at a state level. So the UK has sent numerous trade delegations to the US and they've started uh, one by one having trade agreements with certain states. You mean, I mean, but they can't have free trade agreement, can they? With they a state? Do. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize yeah. that. I thought that had to be approved by the U.S. Department of Commerce. Yeah, and in fact, um, the, the first state in, in the Pacific Northwest, which, which is the state of Washington, which mm -hmm. is one of the export powerhouses, um, is in discussions right now with the UK government. And they could have a free trade agreement between... Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, that's, that is interesting. I didn't yeah. realize that. So then, do you feel like anything was lost in the relationship between the UK and the US because of Brexit? Yes, I do. Uh, I, I think um, confusion <laughs> makes backing uh, a, a particular endeavor really, really different, difficult. I mean, if, if you were to go horse racing and you saw uh, a certain winner and it was paying, I don't know, two to one, uh, you could make an easy decision. If you saw a three-legged horse that's never won a race, but you could make 
you know, 3,000 to one, you, you might say, uh, I'll bet a little bit. But if you've got a horse that nobody knows anything about, you can't see it, it's hidden, it's very, very difficult to, to bet on that particular horse. And I think Brexit caused a lot of confusion. Um, it just put a, a big cloud over doing business with the UK. Especially, yeah, I guess, big investment projects, people probably got scared and... Pre precisely. And all, all of a sudden, uh, the UK was seen by US um, corporations as maybe a bit of a breakaway uh, state. Um, the the status quo was, was broken. Yeah. Uh, the message out of the UK, and, I, and you know, I'm very close to this because I, I was the chair of the British American Business Council for the Pacific Northwest for uh, a number of years, and I'm, I still sit on the board. Yeah. Um, you know, the message out of the UK is things are better now than ever before. We're still open for business we are permitted to make trade agreements now, uh, bilateral trade agreements. So the UK has yeah. run off to places like India and Australia, uh, Canada. It's, you know, it's knocking on the doors of, I believe, dozens of countries right at this very moment looking for trade agreements. Whereas when it was with the UK, with, with the EU, it, it was unable to, to make these bilateral agreements. So the UK feels that um, they're more open for business than ever. I think the confusion, the messaging, the multiple changes of prime minister in, in the past 18 months, um, and, you know, the negative news that has come out of Downing Street has all clouded the U.S. view. Um, I, I'm hoping that that, that uh, grey cloud will continue to lift. Well, good. Well, hopefully everybody who's listening to this podcast will, will hear that message. That's very interesting viewpoint. So I guess to going back to the EU in the future is probably not likely, in your opinion? Um, it would be nice. I think the, the UK uh, has gone from shipping uh, more than 50% of its exports to the EU down to the mid-30s. I'm not sure about those figures, but yeah. um, they are in that range. I think uh, the UK is enjoying the, the new relationships that it's been making, uh -huh. uh, especially with places like India, um, it, you know, where you've got 1.4 billion people, twice the population of the EU. And it's, you know, it's, it's getting in there with some of these countries quite quickly and early. 
and it's trying to be uh, uh, an export powerhouse. So I think any renegotiation in future about uh, becoming part of the EU would be made from a different place. And I think uh, the, the UK would not want as many restrictions as it's had in the past. Yeah. The EU would, would obviously fight that. And um, sure. we'll, we'll see, you know. Yeah, no, no, it's very interesting. They have, obviously they have flexibility that they didn't have before and, and some yep. freedom to move more quickly or, or do things the way they, they, they see that fits their, uh, their needs, their uh, interests. So um, uh, just another question that popped into my head and that happens sometimes. Uh, trade between the UK and the, the form, countries formerly of the empire, is that something that's growing and still strong and important? Like you said, India, I was thinking Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada. I don't. I don't know. Are those relationships still really strong and important? They are, and the relationships with those countries is being modernized. Mm-hmm. the The king, the the new king, is certainly trying his hardest to modernize the monarchy. Mm-hmm. to become a part of a new Great Britain, one that is more in touch and owning up to some of the um, negative things that have happened in its past history. Mm-hmm. There are a number of countries, Commonwealth countries around the world that are investigating their relationship with the UK Mm-hmm. Um, certainly some of the countries in, in the Caribbean are thinking, why are we uh, having coins and notes with a, a, a British monarchy uh, <laughs> featured on them when, what are they doing for us? And, yeah, you know, there, yeah. there are uh, opportunities to, to modernise. Um, yeah. I certainly know that there is a movement in Australia and Canada and certainly India to uh, to break away or at least uh, dilute that uh, that relationship a little bit. Okay. And um, that's certainly not a bad thing. Um, but yes, I mean, they're still friendly towards us. We still have the Commonwealth Games. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's a, an important set of relationships. Sure, sure. It just has to evolve and it, with time and history. So, yeah, uh, and, and and you know, on the back of that, I have to say that um, the relationship between the UK and the US, from a UK point of view, has strengthened. As a result of leaving the EU, um, you know, if you go back 10 years and you wanted to be an exporter, 
you would always look at the EU because it was easy. You could move goods around. Right. And, you know, it was a big captive market. Right. And the US was always deemed, you know, a little bit tougher to get into. Uh, But fast forward to today, and I think you have a lot of UK companies looking at the US uh, as a as a destination, a country they really want to go and do business with. So it's been good from from that point of view. That is good. I've always found, and it depends on the company and the product, but I've always found uh, meeting the CE requirements to be um, kind of a, a, a trade hindrance in a way. I don't know if, if the UK requires some of the same standards that this, you know, when they were part of the CE mark, but. Um, they, they do. And, you know, there, there, there is a movement to have uh, the UK's own version of that just mm-hmm. as there is a you know a movement to to try to morph some of the US standards into uh, a CE type mark as okay. well yeah that um, would make sense it's not that tough if you know how to do it right right now that's true that's true there's a lot of help for that too um I was thinking more for small. It's harder for small companies than than that, but it um, it it is it is uh, a little bit more challenging for for small companies. Um, so it's it's not something that you are able to ignore. It's no. something that you have to do. You have to plan for, and um, it, it's a good thing through and through because it's it's focusing on improving your reporting improving the quality of your product uh in terms of you know safety and other factors so i think you know american companies should be aspiring to achieve ce approval yes. there's there's nothing bad about it no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. Um, so you've been in Oregon for a while. I want to talk about Oregon for a minute. So um, what are some of the advantages that you that Oregon companies have in exporting from, from your perspective? Well, I have been in Oregon for a while, about 15 or 16 years. Uh, I would say that Oregon or Oregonians have really good resources within the state mm-hmm. that are very happy to help them. And I think there's a, a wealth of really good federal uh, people on the ground in terms of um, the Small Business Administration, the SBDCs, the commercial services, Exim Bank, but you've also got pretty good state resources from Business Oregon. Uh, If you're in Portland, you've you've got a couple of extra layers. I think that um, there's a lot of 
entrepreneurial spirit here in Oregon. Mm. They are making things that a lot of countries are really interested in buying. And I say that in terms of Oregon being at the forefront of environmental uh, type products, making sure that um, you know, carbon footprints are thought about in the design and the production. Uh, they are making lots of products that people are interested in terms of aspiring to have a, a leisure-based um, uh, standard of living, if that's a, a, a term I'm really not sure that I'm uh, communicating the right term, but no, we, that makes sense. Yeah, Ore Oregonians are making things that a lot of modern uh, consumers around the world are interested in. You yeah. know, when okay. it comes to the food, um, a lot of you know really healthy food, yeah. a, a lot of really health-based products. Mm -hmm. um, you know the the EV sector is um, very interesting here. There's lots of innovation going on. Uh, I, I would say that Oregon is not a very well-known state around the world. You know, most, most people wouldn't be able to tell you where it, where it is. Um, <laughs> I but, know because I lived on the West Coast, but I hear you. I understand. Right, it's so beautiful right. with the cascades and all that. It's so beautiful. In the yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of Oregonians like it that way. Yeah. You know, just just yeah. come here, but don't tell other people to come <laughs> here as well because we don't like the crowds. You and know, the price and the housing prices go up when too many people. Well, we've we've got that with the the, the Californians um, cashing in and and driving north. Um, Has there been a diaspora of Californians coming to Oregon? Oh, I, I live in a a cul-de-sac of about twenty homes, and I think probably. 15, 16 of those homes have been sold in the last five years to Californians. Yeah. Wow, that's very yeah. interesting. All right, yeah. well, we, we have, I've taken so much of your time, but I just want to ask you because we are a storytelling uh, podcast. Do you have any uh, story or two that you'd like to share with us about your international sales or trading experience? We'd love to hear them. Well, I'll start by saying three numbers. Those numbers are 1, 80, and 95. Okay. And I say those numbers because I look at those numbers and I think to myself, opportunity. One stands for about 1% of US corporations, small businesses or large, are exporting at all. Isn't that and yeah. half of those 1% are only exporting to one country. 95 stands for 95 
5% of the world's population is outside of the US. And 80 stands for 80% of the globe's GDP is outside of the US. So those are the three drivers that make me jump out of bed every morning. I think that, you know, exporting provides an awful lot of new customers. There's, you know, 95 out of 100 people are living outside of the US. I think there's lots of uh, interesting talent and technology that can be grabbed by traveling around the world and meeting interesting people. I think there's amazing economies of scale and exporting provides a certain level of stability in terms of diversity. You know, when one country, maybe the US is going through economic challenges, other parts of the world are, are booming and, and vice versa. So um, being able to export to uh, the Southern Hemisphere when it's cold and nasty here and nobody wants to buy uh, sunscreen in Ohio in December, uh, everybody's calling out for it in other parts of the world. So um, it, in terms of, of stories to tell, um, I, I would just encourage everybody to seek the advice of people that have actually done these types of things before. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. you know, there are horror stories that I've been um, exposed to, you know, containers have been stolen en route to, to certain countries. Um, containers have been uh, mysteriously misplaced in, in a port or, um, you know, just some sort of uh, activity that has preyed on the naivety of US exporters. And there's, there's a lot of that. Yes. That can all be mostly eliminated by asking a few questions and seeking advice of people that are in Oregon and all the other states. I mean, anybody can go to US commercial services and get some free help. Right. And um, in, ter in terms of inspiration, um, I, I can think of a story where we helped an Oregon healthcare company that uh, supplied products into the neonatal uh, uh, sector mm -hmm. and um, intensive care units. And they were getting nowhere. And I jumped on a plane and I thought, I actually went to India. And I thought, there's a big need for this type of product in India. And who would know about this more than the, the Ministry of Health? Mm -hmm. So I worked with the US Embassy in Delhi and the consulate in Mumbai, we 
worked out where the health minister was at that particular time. And I gatecrashed a party that he was attending. And I just walked straight up to him and said, I'm from the US. We have a product that your hospitals really, really need. Who will take a look at this? And he sort of looked at me in, in amazement, but gave me his assistant's details. That assistant put me in touch with the, uh, the medical uh, um, ministry. And within six months, this company was selling their products in hundreds of government-led hospitals. So I, you know, I, I think that, that there is a desire to have certain American-made products. The medical sector specifically, oh, sure. I, I would say, you know, there, there are many, many others where American ingenuity, uh, American quality is revered. Um, you know, food, certainly uh, agriculture, some uh, aerospace defense mm -hmm. less so with with fashion and uh, maybe cosmetics and perfume um you know they're not, they're not part of what the rest of the world thinks america does really really well right. but um you know don't be afraid to do something really creative to to go into another country and and tell your story and um you know there's there's lots of people out out here in oregon and and the rest of the international community that have really you know creative ways of uh getting a story across and creative ways of of getting into a a sales opportunity absolutely well i highly recommend party crashing because that just sounds like fun too so there you go. <laughs> it, 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 it certainly was. Um. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Richard, this has been so such a great discussion. And I hope you don't mind my jumping around with questions. But there was so much to talk about. And you have so much experience that I wanted to share with my listeners. So just thank you so much for, for participating today. It was great. And... Um... It experience is is just something that that comes with uh, making trips to overseas markets. Yeah. There is an amazing amount of help out there for small to medium sized companies to do exactly that. Yeah. Um, you know, jump on a plane and uh, go and see what what's going on in uh, in some other countries. There's uh, some amazing things happening, some amazing opportunities for American exporters. There is a wealth of data that's available through a number of different sources, much of it free of cost. And uh, I'm always happy to speak to anybody that has uh, a question and who is nice. You know, and I think it's the same with the international fraternity. We're, 
Yes. We're all happy to, to share what we know, and we're very often happy to share who we know as well. Yeah, no, that's great. And we are going to uh, uh, post your uh, your company's website on, on the page here, on the episode page. So, so thank you again. Thank you so much for for uh, participating today. And uh, I want to say to our listeners, you know, you should weigh in. We, If you have some questions or just want to share some thoughts, please reach out to me and uh, at exportstoriespodcast.com. I'm happy to share your comments there. And we're on Facebook and LinkedIn. And like I said, I will also post uh, the Trade Horizon a website as well. So, you know, we're a community of exporters, just like Richard said, and, and we like talking with each other. So, so, so great talking to you today, Richard. Thank you so much. Likewise, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you. We'll be back right. with another episode. Thanks, everyone. Right. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 